ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, a special edition. There's, there's five of us in the room tonight, and Deep Throat has returned after a long absence <laughs> to tell us all about voluntary assisted dying. So... Uh, this is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Paul the Twelfth Man. Greetings, Earthlings. Shay. Hello. Still needing a pseudonym. Sharkbait Shay, or or what was your suggestion? Um, high Flyer. High Flying Shay. High Flyer. Shay high the High Flyer. flyer. Yeah. High Flyer Shay. <laughs> uh, deep Throat Craig, welcome again. Thank you for inviting me. And Joe the Tech Guy. Evening, all. Right. So... Look, we've got enough stuff on the agenda, dear listener, to last us a five or six hour podcast wow. if we wanted to. I but should have brought a sleeping bag. That's it. <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about voluntary assisted dying to kick off with because we've got an expert here with us. And, uh, and then we'll move into other topics that are going on around the world from Tokyo Olympics, safe, reliable power, Deliveroo, property auctions, Spanish stamps, Chinese masks, the Archibald Prize... Um, even the Queensland coat of arms and Boris Johnson, a whole heap of things that we could get to uh, see how we go. If you're in that chat room, like Daniel, say hello and make some comments. We'll try and get to them. Voluntary assisted dying is on the agenda for Queensland at last, like really on the agenda. So we've got a situation in Queensland now, deep throat, where um, it's been through different uh, law reform commissions and there's been lots of public hearings and we're about to have or we have had the draft bill tabled in the Queensland it Parliament. Tabled. It was tabled last Wednesday and I was there. I was there. It was uh, uh, No, not last Wednesday, last Tuesday. Um, it was, we didn't really know exactly when it would be, but so it was a small group of us, four of us from Dying with Dignity Queensland mm. and we rocked up and... We left because we didn't think it was going to happen. Then we got word that was happening, so we rushed back up to the public gallery. And so we were there when it happened, and uh, it was a very emotional time for us four, at least. Um, it was interesting in that when you were looking at the public gallery and on the left was the Labor members, MPs, they were all very attentive watching the Premier give her um, speech about the, the bill because it was too long to read it out. So she just mm. gave a praise of what was going on and made a few remarks. And I thought I was quite impressed with her speech. Um, but on the other side, um, half of them weren't there <laughs> for right. a start. They'd, yeah. they'd left after question time. And the others, most of the others were on their texting on their phones and on their. That's probably par for the course whenever the other side is talking. Yes. I would have thought. Yes. I haven't oh, been in. Whatever the bill yeah. or occasion. Yes. And whatever the situation, yeah. they would pretend to feign yeah. disinterest in what's going on. Yes. And probably. I think you're absolutely right. It was my first time in the public gallery. So for me, yeah. it was a stark sort of thing that was going yeah. on. And I don't think it's a good look, personally. Mm. And I think if any other public member was there, um, it's not a good look. And in fact, there were school kids coming in and out. There was, you know, like the, like the tourist guides going in and out all the time while we were there. Yes. And I don't think it's a good look for them either, you know, seeing our parliamentarians uh, sort of acting a little bit childish, totally, should I totally say? Agree. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we see this regularly on the um, broadcasts of the federal parliament. Mm. You know, and it's, it's often mentioned in the, the mainstream media, you know, they'll 
you know, to shame some parliamentarian, they'll flash a photo of that person sitting in parliament uh, just looking at their phone. And it, you're right, when, particularly when young people are coming through, it mm. sets a very poor example. Yeah, and I think this is, <clears throat> excuse me, I think this is a little bit different in terms of this bill. Mm. I think this is an historic bill that's being tabled. It's not just like you know, supply or something like that where I think probably a bit of argy-bargy is, is, is warranted. But with this, I think it needed respect, and I don't think it was shown by the uh, opposition by half of them not being there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Craig, do you want to give your credentials? Just Can you state your official position? Or yeah, I'm, you... I'm Vice President of Dying with Dignity Queensland. We have yeah. two Vice Presidents, so um, yeah, we just thought the position needed a bit more oomph. Yes. So, um, so they, they looked around and said, you'll do. Um, so, what yeah, about so, diversity quotas? Uh, diversity in, quotas? In the organisation? Um, in our organisation, I have to say, I think the average age is 74, so right. <laughs> we're a certain demographic. And You're I, one of the young I, ones. I, I, I've not been able to work it out. I, I don't understand why. <laughs> and which? Um, but we, we had a change in our secretary who was um, sort of, uh, I haven't asked, but I'm assuming she's in her 40s, so our, our average age of our committee just sort of plummeted. So that, yes. so that was a good sign. So um, Yes. Yeah. 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 But, um, yep. So and, let's talk about initially... <clears throat> how the legislation works in terms of, uh, you know, I've got an illness and I'm thinking I'm worried about a pretty grim ending that might be painful, that I might want to cut short with some sort of uh, medication. So do you want to run through the mechanism? Yeah, I can run through it for you. Um, (coughs) Excuse me, I think that would be a croaky voice. But the the person has to be dying and they have to be suffering. So... Um, and I say both of those things because one of the comments from the um, uh, from the Queensland Law Reform Commission, where this bill's come from, was that you have to look at the whole package. And I think I've seen people make mistakes by just looking at one aspect. And if you don't look at the whole package in 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 respect to that uh, one thing that they're talking about, that you can miss what's really going on. So anyway, um, so there. Have, do you want me to actually talk about the process yeah, or talk yeah. about the criteria and things like that? Everything. Like Everything. I think, okay. Just assume we know nothing, and we do. Okay. Like, it was only because I just read some stuff this afternoon in preparation, but yeah. the actual mechanics of it, what people would have to go through in order to arrive at that moment where yeah. they get injected. So what, you, you have hmm. there's five criteria that you have to meet. Um, so a person has to be um, have an eligible condition. Uh, they have to have decision-making capacity. They have to be. They, they have to um, uh, be making it um, in a voluntary capacity, capacity without coercion. They have to be at least age eighteen or above, and um, they they have to be a resident of Queensland. So mm. that's that's the first major criteria. Now mm. I'm sort of summarising a little bit. Mm. If you go to the actual condition, the eligible condition, then it has to be a their words are a disease, illness or medical condition where it is advanced, progressive and will result in death. It also has to be that the death will be expected within 12 months um, and also, um, what's the third one? Um, oh, I've got it here somewhere. Uh, oh, it has to be cause, causing suffering. That, that, right. If you're not that, in any pain or discomfort, then it doesn't count. No, that's right. right. There has to be suffering. So that's why I mentioned what the beginning. What would be that sort of disease? What, what sort of disease would you be terminal and yeah, there would the, be but, no 
pain associated? Um, well, the two things that spring to mind, which are very common, are yeah. chronic obstructive airways disease, where the person's like a fish out of water. And in some ways, can you imagine not being able to get your breath and feel ever you feel like you're suffocating? Right. That's not a good way to die. And that wouldn't be included in this? It is included oh, in it is. this because oh, right. that's suffering. Okay. See? That's what, suffering. What's Intolerable an example suffering. of one that I see? I've got a friend at the moment suffering from cancer and it's all through his body and it's pressing on nerves and he's, he's having to take enormous amounts of pain relief to get him through the day. So I, I see that. But um, can you just describe a condition where you know you're going to die in 12 months and it's you'll experience no pain until the Yeah, time? well, What's... Take, take that instance, but another person who has right. cancer okay. and they have no pain. Right. They have no symptoms at all. Right. The cancer is progressing. It's advanced, and it is going to kill them, but they, they, they're well-controlled with palliative care and that, right. um, uh, or they don't even need palliative care. So right. some people go through this process without any suffering at all. Right. Uh, so um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other conditions and that um, there could be you, – you could, you could even look at a sort of like a disability-type thing where the person – and let's make it clear that disability in itself is not uh, a condition for – having voluntary assisted dying. But if you're a quadriplegic and you're and it's a very high one, you might be suffering in terms of your inability to do things and that. So everyone will be different in that mm. sort of circumstance, but they may be suffering, but they're not actually dying. Mm. You know? yep. So they're not they're doing they're not dying and they're not suffering. So yep. and there's lots of chronic conditions um, where people um, you know, their life isn't as good as what it should be. Yep. Um, but they don't meet those two criteria, dying and suffering. Right. Yeah. So do you want to talk about this whole thing of the first doctor, second doctor, back to the first doctor sort yes. of situation? So the whole idea was to make sure that there were safeguards because this is what's been focused on by a lot of people, including, and especially the opponents of um, uh, voluntary assisted dying. Someone added up all the safeguards in the Victorian legislation that came to 68. I don't, I haven't done, I don't know what it is in, in Queensland, but apparently in South Australia, it's 70. They're going, they've gone two more or something. So, um, but, I, but what it means is there has to be something in, in place to make sure that we, we don't see coercion, we don't see um, people, you know, suddenly deciding they want it and then they get voluntary assisted dying and then, and they would have changed their mind. So, one of the concepts is, having safeguards and making sure that the process is enduring. So from an enduring point of view, from first request through to last request, so there's three requests have to be made, is nine days. Um, I think in one of the other jurisdictions it's ten days. But anyway, for Queensland, they've decided on nine days. So, So the person approaches a doctor, usually their own doctor, and says, I want to access voluntary assisted dying. Now, that might come up in the conversation as well. You know, it might not mm. be right there. So, so that has to be the first one. Then that doctor has to, either, has to uh, accept the request and become the coordinating practitioner. Um, so they're going to follow through with this person through the whole process. And is it expected that normal GPs will do that in most circumstances or is it going to be more of a specialised sort of role or, or what, what do they expect to happen there, it's going, it's going to be a little bit of both because starting off, there's not going to be many doctors on the ground who have done a, I was going to say a course, but it's not a real course, but they have to fit the eligibility by doing some sort of training. Um, and this is haps, happening in Western Australia 
It's happening in Victoria. And so there has to be eligibility there. There also has to be that the doctor has um, prior experience in their specialty um, so that um, uh, you're not, you know, so, so, so some doctors won't be able to do this and they would have to refer the patient to another doctor who does have those qualifications, has done that training. Okay, so if I've got cancer of the liver or esophagus or something, is my GP, and it's just a normal average GP, would would they say, well, I really don't know about your 12-month, 18-month, two-year diagnosis, it's going to be up to a specialist to determine? No, I don't really think so because in the normal um, course of events in treating that person for that or managing that person, they would have reports from various specialties, right. specialists. And they can rely on that. And they can rely on that. Okay. You know, it, okay. Usually the GP has a better handle on what's happening than the specialists, actually. Yes. They, they're more in tune with what's going on yep. and often how the person's going in terms of their overall well-being in that. So, okay, but the GP is, had, will have to have done some course or training. Some training, some, that's right. Okay, we're not sure how much that is or whatever. Not but, at this stage. No, okay, yeah, no, which is no. probably... I don't know. I'm suspecting a lot about make, making sure you comply with the rules. There will be checklists. So yes. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of checkboxes that you have yes. to go through. That's yep. right. Yep. That's right. So more of a legal training to tick the boxes is probably what's involved. Yeah, but there yeah. will also be that clinical aspect as well because yep. you want to. So so the coordin- So you, you get that first request. Say yep. say the, the first request is to a GP who says, "Yep, done the training. I'm I'm happy to go forward with this." Yep. And they will become the coordinating practitioner. Yep. So they'll do the first assessment. So the next step is, is the assessment. And that's where this checklist will come in. Yep. And at that the assessment, they also need to make sure that the person is doing it voluntarily. They, there is no coercion. So mm. there's, and that they have decision-making capacity. So that's your legal sort of part there with yep. that decision-making capacity. Um, and then after that goes through, if they're happy that the person does qualify um, then they will. They the, the person then has to see a, a second uh, doctor for a second assessment, and that's called the consulting practitioner. Right. And who decides who that's going to be? Is it up to the patient, or does the first doctor help them out? Or? The first doctor can help them out. Right. But in Queensland, there will also be a navigating service, uh, which will provide um, will help the doctor, right, and the patient and the person. Um, find um, resources and maybe other doctors, yeah. So yep. it just depends on, on a lot of things, like okay. where they are. and um, Just playing devil's advocate, yep. you could see if you've got a GP who's the first coordinating practitioner who does a bunch of these and always refers people to the same mm. second practitioner, it would open a sort of a suspicion of collusion between the two of them potentially. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, uh, yeah, and so. and so there's another body called the Oversight Board. I don't know what the name of that's going to be. It's probably the Voluntary Assisted Dying Oversight Board. So during this process, um, reports have to go off to this Oversight Board. So if they saw a pattern or something right. going on, they go, "Hang on, something's yep. going on here." Right. Um, so there is. Yeah. So that again, this is one of these sixty-eight safeguards, or how many safeguards there are. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So second practitioner looks and goes through a, a similar checklist. Yep and says, uh, I agree, this looks like a suitable case. And that's kind of considered the end of the second request. 
and then it goes no, back. No, that's the uh, end of the second assessment. The second assessment. assessment. Okay. Then it goes back. Then it goes to it goes for the second request. Then right. So the second request is important because it has to be done uh, in writing. It has to be before two witnesses uh, who have to certify that the person um, is making that request again without uh, coercion and, and and all the other things. Right. Um, and so they make that that, that um, request. So and that's not with a doctor. That's done with no, two that's other with people. Two witnesses. That's right. Right. Okay. Yeah, yes. All right. Well, that's yes. good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so two totally separate. Totally separate. What sort of people? Well, they have to. They, you know, you, they, there's. I, I can't remember all the. Exclu- mm. There are exclusions, like you know, like lawyers. With, yeah, like you don't want them involved. <laughs> lawyers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't get lawyers involved. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, family members or it, no? Um, it depends if the family member gets some sort of um, would benefit from it. You know, like the usual things that you see right. in law in terms okay. of like, <laughs> if you've got a conflict of interest, <laughs> a you can't of be. Interest. Yeah, you can't yeah. be yeah. the signatory. Okay, yeah. so I can't remember the exact details, but it's those sort of things where which are right. commonplace in law that you can't be benefiting from okay. signing the. So after the second assessment, somebody then makes a second request to two people, not either of the doctors. And they these people swear that okay, this person made this request and mm. seemed to be of mm. doing it voluntarily. Yes, so right. okay, so they've made their second request to those people, and then what happens? So at that stage, it's then there there'll be a, a third request, um, which is the final request. And at that stage, if uh, and that's made to the coordinating um, practitioner. Um, who is again documented and sent off to the oversight board. Um, and at that stage, that's when the prescription can be written for the substance. Yeah. Right. So that's that's the process. And then so there could be quite a delay between that second request and the final request, okay? It can be quite a delay or there may not be so much of a delay. So it all depends on how the person's going. Um, in terms of their condition. Yep. And if you receive the medication and you don't use it and you just sit on it for a while, yeah. is, is well, that Well, there's, okay? there's two aspects here, okay? So in the Queensland legislation, it could be administered by the person themselves. They take the, the substance, yep. okay? Or it could be physician-administered. Now, if it's physician-administered, it would be done by an intravenous-type route. Yep. Um, so it depends on which way it's going to go. So for, if it's going to be self-administered, okay, then the person needs to have a contact person who can have some responsibility for, after the person dies, um, um, notifying the coordinating GP that this has happened because the GP does, the, or the coordinating practitioner doesn't have to be there, doesn't yeah. have to be present when that person dies. Um, and also they have to notify the oversight board. So the, the, a report has to go in. Yep. Now say the person dies before they get there or they change their mind, um, and that's fine. All the way along here, the, the part of the process is, you know, do you want to go ahead with this? Yeah, it's Funnily just enough. Ad, ad no- yeah. yeah, that's right. That gnaws him to the point that the person will be going, stop saying that. Yeah, right? yes. So, but anyway, it's it's part of the process. So so if they change their mind at the last hurl and they'll be asked, you know, you, 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 you know all the way through. Yeah. So 
even by the pharmacist who delivers the the substance they, yeah. they will ask do you want to go through this? so all the way yeah. along people are asking yeah so if they didn't go through it or they died then that contact person is responsible for notifying the coordinating practitioner and making sure that this substance is disposed of properly now right. how that's disposed i don't know there's, there's going to be some sort of regulation or check right okay but if you thought you know i'm just not sure what the pain levels i can take i want it early i want it sitting there so i can pull the trigger um, and have it whenever I want. You could be sitting on a lethal dose in your cupboard for months. You could be, yeah. yes, yeah. you could be. You know, yeah. So the legislation is up to 12 months in yeah. terms of it's supposed to be uh, death expected within 12 months. So, mm. yeah, it could be. Um, I know in Victoria it's it's delivered in a locked box, you know, mm. so, so and the key and, and all that and, sort of thing. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because the mm. whole point of this is people often find the fact that they've got a choice and they've got the ability to put a stop to it if they want to is enormously comforting. It is. So it quite often would be the case, I would imagine, where people yeah. might well sit on it and not use it, but they just get great comfort from knowing it's there if they really need it. Yeah, so we're seeing figures coming out of Victoria where I think it's like 32% don't use the medication, and that's right. sort of in overseas as well. It's around about those sort of figures. Mm. Um, and... That's a big factor. You, you, you know, people are scared and people are worried about how they will go at the end of their life. And so it, it's an amazing comfort to know that you've got it out if you need it. You've, mm. you've got it out. So, um, um, and the other thing to mention on, in this score too is that 70% of people in Victoria also go through the palliative care route as well. You know, it's, it's, it's not an either and all thing. So they're doing that, but they're hedging their beds. Mm. and. That's not bad. I, I like that idea. Mm. <laughs> that appeals to me. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, Twelve months for Queensland. Yep. In terms of expected to die within, um, Victoria was six. Is that so right? So in Victoria, except the, in some limited circumstance or something. Like yeah, that? it was for motor, you know, motor, well, neurological conditions, but particularly mm. motor neuron disease. It was twelve months mm. and six months for the rest, and that's the same in Western Australia. Yeah. But the thing to note is that the original legislation, the um, draft legislation in Victoria and Western Australia was for 12 months. Yep. Um, and it makes sense. So to me, I, I, I didn't see the debates or anything like that, but so you sort of think, well, was this one of the fudge things that came in amendment-wise, and, and it was amendment thing, to decrease the 12 months to six months? There's no rational reason, I don't think, to drop it down to the six months because say you've got... Um, chronic obstructive airways disease, disease um, that would be like motor neuron disease. That can be quite a slow process of dying. Um, mm. Chronic heart failure, you know, dying of heart failure. There's, there's, I, I don't see any rational reason to have this delineation between uh, all other all conditions and then neurological conditions, the so six months and the 12 months. So, And the Queensland Law Reform Commission have looked at the Victorian... Uh, legislation, the draft legislation, the, the Western Australian one, and said, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So we're saying 12 months too. So I think in Queensland we've got an opportunity to improve and, and stick with the 12 months, which mm. expert panels have said this is the best time frame. Mm. So one of the other differences is in relation to an institutional conscience. Yes, that's the big one, isn't it? Mm, that's the, the elephant one in the room. Interests me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this one, dear listener, institutional conscience. A Catholic Archbishop of Brisbane, Mark Coleridge, 
and Uniting Church Queensland moderator Andrew Gunton said the draft bill failed to deliver the promised right of institutional conscientious objection. And so the bill has allows practitioners a conscientious objection if they don't want to be involved, but this Queensland bill has got provisions in relation to institutions, facilities, hospitals, whereby they can't simply say we want nothing to do with this and hold people... They have to start accommodating and, and helping out in this process. So there's so, controls for coercion on both sides is what we're saying. Yes, exactly. Coercion's by the institution. Mm. So so do you want to describe, because uh, yeah. I've bastardised the concept there yeah. badly. Can I, so, can I just yeah. back up a little bit? Mm. Um, so it, it enshrines the, the right to conscientious, conscientious objection by health practitioners, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think everyone's fine with that. I, I don't see any major problems with that except for the fact if that they use that objection to cause unnecessary delay in that. And so in the, um, in the Queensland legislation that's been tabled, they say that the conscientious objector must inform the person, if, the, if, if they make that request, yeah. inform the person that there may be other options okay? yeah. yes. you know, in terms of getting it's, help or things like that. So it's that's it's, a bit it's like, familiar like the abortion law. Sounds a lot similar thing, yeah, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, so it's yeah. it's keeping it very vague. Mm. Um, and if if they can't if they can't even do that, then they must then refer the person to the navigation service and saying the navigation service will help talk to you about options and that. So yep. so it sort of does help the, the conscientious objector uh, in in terms of not having to frame it. Um, in so specific terms, but it also puts the onus on them to not just leave the person high and dry. Yeah, they so, can't be so left uninformed. That's right. Yep. So, so that sort of sets the scene then for the um, for the entities, these um, like nursing homes, hospices, um, mm-hmm. hospitals, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, this was a this was a tough one for the Queensland Law Reform Commission. Um, you know, they, they could see two very competing interests here in terms of what people thought should happen. So they dealt with it by breaking it down. So they broke it down in terms of the process, in terms of um, um, the request procedure, the uh, assessment procedure, and then the administration procedure, okay? So when they looked at the the, um, request part of it, they said, no, you know, institutions can't, you know, intrude on people's rights by saying, no, you can't even talk about it, You 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 can't. Uh, make a request. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll just set the scene a little yep. bit here. When we went to a lecture, I think you were with me, at yeah, QUT, QUT yep. where they were talking about the Canadian experience. Mm. And mm. over there, basically, they ended up relying on some sort of human rights provision in the Constitution to mm. enable this. But what they found with religious um, hospitals in Canada was that, that there was this right for uh, uh, voluntary assisted dying but the hospitals were making it really difficult for people mm. to access it. So they had patients in their hospitals who were wanting to access voluntary assisted dying and they weren't allowing people in with the necessary paperwork and then they were making it really difficult for those patients to transfer to a different mm. hospital. And there was sto- one of the stories was of the people with the paperwork <clears throat> having to be disguised as as delivering flowers, like as, as florists, in order to enter the hospital to present the paperwork. 
Yes. And it a terrible story of a man, I think it was, who underwent enormous pain in getting transferred out of the hospital mm. to another hospital because the, the, tr- yeah, the trauma he, of transferring through the yeah, ambulance service was... That's right. I think he, they, he, they had to bring him out of the sedation and, the, yes. um, and his pain relief so he was with it enough to agree to Correct. be transferred, which yes. put him through terrible misery. Yeah. 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 So there was that sort of concern where institutions become very obstructive to outside people mm. wanting to use the law. So that's the background as to yes. what's in the back of the minds of people yes. with this. So sorry, go ahead. Craig. Yeah, yeah. So um so how it will work is that in that request process, the institution cannot stop someone going in, like you said, and saying and uh, you know, the person make to, to to receive that request, right? Um so um that that can't happen. You know, with that, with re, with requests, mm-hmm. and their rationale was that this is part of normal life. You know, people come and go, and relatives come and go, and and we don't put restrictions who people can see just because they're in a hospital or an institution. Mm. So that was their rationale there. Yep. Um, so that's that. That's a coordinating practitioner, or uh, that's no? The, that's just the, the the request process. So right, that would yep. be to the coordinating um, yep. practitioner. So that's allowing the coordinating practitioner into, say, a Catholic yes. hospital that doesn't like the idea of that's this. right. Yeah, that's right. He can come um, in as of right. Yeah. Yep. There's a little bit of extra stuff there yep. to you know, a little bit of argy mm-hmm. bargy there, but that, but basically that's that's the thing. The same with the assessment process. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the assessment process again is a. In this case, it's you know it's the doctor the, and the second the, doctor. The second doctor. That's yep. right. So the same same process there. Uh, again, a little bit of argy bargy, but effectively, yes, they can go in. And this is this makes it different from the Victorian sort of legislation. Yep. And the 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 part that came was difficult for them was then the administration part of it, allowing. Okay. Also, you've got the two witnesses, and the witnesses, and presumably yep, the witnesses fine. come in. That's all good. That's part well. of the request process. So yep. those all the requests, yep. same deal. Yep. All the assess the two assessments, the same deal. And I think, as I was reading it, I think if instead of those people coming into the hospital, if the patient wanted to go out for the day to meet these people, was that facilitated? I think. Uh, yeah, they're allowed to do that. That's yes. right. That's and the right. hospital has and to hospital sort of has facilitate to that. Facilitate. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So now yeah. we've um, back to the the final administration of the yes. drug. Yes. Yep. And this is where um, the the Queensland Law Reform Commission had to think very seriously about this. So, mm. in this situation, if the person is able to. The desired thing from the Queensland Law Reform Commission is that the person, if the if the institution um, don't want this to happen on their in their facility, the person has to transfer to another facility or somewhere where they can either self-administer, or if if the practitioner thinks it's necessary, be administered by the practitioner. So that's the stand thing. However, again. They did a little bit of bargy bargy here. So that if the person, it would cause harm to the person, it would cause distress or whatever, then the person would be allowed to have it in that facility. Right. But very strictly controlled. So for all intents and purposes, they would be being referred out of that. But but they left this possibility of it still occurring in the facility. Mm. So... Um, can't give you the exact details because I haven't been through the 800-page report <laughs> carefully yet, but, yeah. but I will do. But essentially that's what's going on. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. 
I sense a lot of legal work coming up, potentially yes. Yes. forcing these institutions to cooperate. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that's the process. I, I, I think the alternate place could well be um, inside the most vo- uh, vocal churches. So you could go and self-administer, go and sit in the church and self-administer. <laughs> You've lost me, Joe. <laughs> ha- having been given the medication right. to end your life, yes. if you're not allowed to take it in the aged care facility that you are right. um, living in, yeah. that you should go to whichever church is most vocal, right. sit in the middle of the church and take, right. take the dose. Right, okay, yes. That's or or if it's a Catholic-run institution, yeah. they might have their own chapel. You could yeah. just sneak out. Well, possibly. Yeah. I yeah. suspect these Secret people are a, the a little bit... Um, <laughs> Thinking about other things at this point in their life that uh, yes. uh, might make make them not think about um, protest movements. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's going to be where mm. the fight is going to be, and mm. over that mm. you can see there'll be a lot of lobbying mm. by powerful groups. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That'll be so, interesting um, to see, and uh, and that's where. So yeah, I, I think yeah, you know, when it comes to the second reading, mm. you know. And that's when the debate occurs, and that's when amendments are going to come forward. Um, it's going to be on that six month thing because they, yep. you know, they 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 managed it in. So they're going to say, "Well, it's in Victoria, it's in Western Australia. We we should do that too." Yes. Um, and the other one's going to be this. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So um, this is quite unique. This part about the institution. Yes, this is where we're going forward in Queensland, and I I think it's good that we're improving on Victoria. We're, mm. we're, let's face it, Victoria needed some improvements. Western right. Australia did this. Uh, in, in in some areas, and then and they improved on it, but we've just gone that little bit further. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Western Australia has got a similar institutional conscience, has, not applying type thing, but not as good. Not as good. Right. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So just um, backtracking a little bit. Yep. Uh, the 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 sort of lobby group behind all this has been working for decades, almost. Oh it's yes. Funded yeah. by the Clem Jones. State, no, well, that's or, not, or not true. I no? thought that when I was ah. sort of just a member before I became on the committee. So, right. to give you a bit, so we've been going at least thirty years, but um, I think the organisation was sort of there in some form before it became formal and incorporated and all that sort of thing. So, right, um, I've heard various figures banded around, but it's at least thirty years, and it's probably more like thirty-five years. Right, so. A lot of people have come and gone, and uh, a lot of people have died waiting for the legislation. So, um, and but along the whole track, along the whole process, the numbers of the in the community who support voluntary assisted dying has been growing. So we're over eighty percent now in yeah. terms of support. I thought you told me a story where they sort of recognised that. Queensland will never be the first for anything, mm. and that they actually invested a bit of money helping these groups in other states. Yes, hoping that's, that that would set an example that Queensland could yeah, then follow. That's true for Victoria. So they, right. the, the Clemens Jones group did, has stepped in here and there. Yes, um, but as the chairman of the Clemens Jones group said to me, um, "Don't wait for the pot of gold. There is no pot of gold coming. <laughs> we, we're getting nothing." from the Clem Jones group in terms of money. Right. Um, yep. And if we do, it won't be a big amount. Yep. Having said that, the Dying with Dignity Queensland has worked extremely closely with the Clem Jones group and also Doctors for Assisted Dying Choice. In fact, we call ourselves a coalition yep. um, because we have expertise in various areas. Um, and it's been a very fruitful um, coalition, um, even though there's no pot of gold. <laughs> yes. So, so 
I respect what the Clem Jones Group's done. It's worked tirelessly uh, in the background because they don't, they don't really push their own barrow, really, and they do an awful lot of work and they've done incredibly good work in terms of um, um, pushing voluntary assisted dying. Yeah, we've mentioned it before. Clem Jones, former Lord Mayor of Brisbane. That's what I was going to say. Some of the listeners might not know. Successful businessman, um, responsible for creating the sewer system for Brisbane and much beloved sort of Lord Mayor, one of the ones that most people look fondly upon, and his estate had some money and his wife had a very tough death. And so that was one of the motivating forces for the estate, putting money into this sort of area. So it'd be a really sweet sort of victory if it comes. Yes. Because nothing's guaranteed. No, it's not. But the whole idea of playing a long game, supporting other states Mm. first, because you knew Queensland will never pioneer anything, Mm. and then being able to... there must be something that Queensland has pioneered. Can you think of anything? Yeah. Not off the top of my head, but um, But uh, Fitzgerald Commission... But that was because we probably had a terrible, mm. the worst corrupt mm. system to begin with. They've had, had uh, so, inquiries yeah. into police corruption in other mm. states, of course. I don't know what the uh, who who came first, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to to find something that Queensland has done first. Yeah, but look, I have a question, yes. Craig. If you you know, satisfied all the requirements for eligibility and you obtained the drug, you said you have to use it within 12 months. Is that correct? Um, you've got me there. I don't know can, what the time frame can, is. Can you receive it and then sit on it for 12 months? I don't know. I haven't read that. There's somewhere buried in that 800 pages there'll be the you know, answer, think, answers about that. Yeah. But, again, that 12 months is really a prognostic thing that's not set in stone. That's mm. what, you know, medical practitioners will think yes, the life expectancy is. They, it could can't, be a lot, say for they sure. can't say for sure. So there'll be cases where it's longer than 12 months and the person's not ready to um, go through the process. Mm. So, yeah, I, I would imagine that could go over the 12 months. Mm. Um, but there may be things in the regulations when they come out, because the regulations have to be put after the legislation, that um, you know that there are checks and balances, and mm. and the um, the oversight body says, look, you know, is this are you still a goal with this? Yeah. What's happened, type thing. So yeah. And I have a question as yeah. well. Do they um, amend it and then put it to a conscience vote, or do they put it to a conscience vote and then argue bargy about the finer details? Um, with the second reading, um, that's a very good question. Um, so. With the second reading, so it gets, I think it just gets tabled as the second reading and then they do the debate and putting amendments and that. Okay. And then the, the final um, reading is the, um, if that's what it's called, is the actual vote. There's no discussion about, no debate about it. It, it just happens, yeah, mm. yay or nay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so from here on in, it's kind of up to them. Yeah, so what's happened is that the after it was tabled by the Premier, she has sent it to another parliamentary committee to the health committee to the health committee um, for twelve weeks. So it's in Queensland. It's been a very arduous time, yes. and so this again will be the the committee will look at the actual legislation, the proposed legislation from the Queensland Law Reform Commission. So I would expect that the Labor members of the health committee, and there are three Labor members. 
there's two liberal and there's one independent. Um, and so there'll be argy-bargy going on there. The same as with the report that came out after parliamentary inquiry for 18 months. Here we've got a 12-week one on top of an 18-month one. And in that one, the the um, the Labor members and there was a, the independent was the Green member, um, Michael Berkman, they were totally in favour of voluntary sister dying while the two dissenting voters who were LNP put in a dissenting report, but the majority report was in favour of it. So okay. you could sort of see this happening again, you know. I mean, are they going mm. to change their mind? Well, the leader of the opposition has said he'll give a conscience vote. Mm. So, um, and he said it's a genuine conscience vote, not one where we're going to crucify you afterwards if you mm. don't follow the party line. Which is what line. happened with the uh, abortion. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how that pans out. Yeah. Um, so it's a different crew, isn't it, with Chris Foley as the mm. uh, LNP leader this time. And we have a little bit of a door, uh, boot in the door because Campbell Newman is now back in, on, you know, in the, um, oh, I don't know yes. what they call the LNP committee or whatever it is, and he's strongly in favour of um, voluntary assisted dying. In fact, he says it's one of his big regrets that he didn't bring in voluntary assisted dying when he okay. was Premier. So I'm hoping, this is my hope, I have no evidence for this, I'm hoping that his influence there will muzzle the um, the back, you know, the back... Um, yeah, the Christian fanatics. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that crew mm. who last time, you know, made life very difficult for those three dissenting um, LNP voters, um, MPs. So I'm yeah. hoping that won't happen this time. And also they got an awful lot of flack from doing that. So, yeah. you know, the word got out... Um, and that, I don't think they can afford right. that to happen this time. However, that's just all wishful thinking on my part. You know, mm. Who knows what happens in the back rooms? Yes. Yeah. So this article I've got here says that uh, they'd expect a vote on the bill in September. Mm. So if it's passed, it would likely come into effect in January 2023. Yes. By the time you've so got all in, the stuff yeah. in place. That's right. There's, you've got to, there's, there's a whole little cut. Things got to happen. There's got to be mm. training of doc, of medical practitioners. There have to be regulations put in place. There have to be guidelines put in place, um, and you know, setting up of the oversight board, the navigation services, an awful lot of stuff to be done. And in Victoria and Western Australia, that was an eighteen month process. But what the premier said, because there was a delay getting the Queensland Law Reform Commission report through, uh, and it was, uh, I understand because the amount of work that's gone into eight hundred pages is massive. Um, she said because of that delay of three months, the process for implementation has come down to 15 months. And I think that's reasonable because they do have what happened in Victoria, they do have what happened in Western Australia, so surely they can do it in a shorter space of time than the 18 months. Mm. So it's mm. 15 months rather than 18 months. Mm. Looking around the world, Oregon was one of the first places to bring um, what they called a Death with Dignity Act back in 1994. Wow. Yes, but it wasn't the first in the world. Ah. The first in the world was the Northern Territory. Ah, uh, you can ask me course. what date it was, but it was before then, <laughs> whatever it was. Of course. Yeah. Was that right? Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So you know, the Northern Territory with the um, Chief Minister of the Northern yeah. Territory, uh, Marshall Perrin, yeah. um, he brought that in. Yeah. Um, and then it was quickly squashed by the um, – because, because yeah. it's a territory. Was it Kevin squashed. Andrews? Kevin private, Andrews, yeah. Private, private Members Bill. Yeah, yeah. that's right. What party was Marshall Perrin? Um, 1995, oh. Northern yeah. Territory. 95. Um, oh, they had something like country. They had different 
you know, was it the Country Party or Country Liberal Party? Yeah, something like. Yeah. Hang on a sec. Yeah, Oregon was, was nineteen ninety four, and you're saying ninety five. It's a-, a ABC says ninety five, but says it was the first in the world. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Can't, can't help oh, here lives. we go. It passed the act in ninety four, but it didn't take effect till ninety seven in uh-huh. Oregon. Uh-huh. So there's all these. There we go. Of, that there might we go. explain that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. the Oregon law, um, so it didn't take effect until nineteen ninety seven, and as of two thousand and seventeen. So in a twenty year period, um, they'd had basically eleven hundred patients had died from ingesting the medications provided. Um, in 2016, that was 133 people. Most participants, 70% of them were 65 years or older, and most, 77%, had cancer. So I don't know about well, Victorian yeah, so experience. Can, can I just or? say that the mm. Oregon legislation has been the um, template, you might say, for the... Victorian legislation, then the Victorian legislation template for the Western Australia and then Western Australia for us. So mm. we are following the Oregon model. Um, you'll hear a lot of the opponents bringing up about the Netherlands and Switzerland and even Canada and that, but they're completely different in some ways in, in terms of their historic way that they've come about in that. So we're really following the Oregon model. Yeah. Let um, me just tell you a little bit about some of these other ones. So Netherlands and Belgium... The patient only needs to be experiencing unbearable suffering without a prospect of cure. Mm. Um, doesn't have to be t- um, terminal and includes dementia, alcohol and drug addiction, mental illness and disability. So they're very mm. different to what's being very different, very different um, referred um, to here. Mm. Uh, both Belgium and Netherlands removed the age el- eligibility criteria. Uh, so Netherlands. Age as in 18 and above. Yeah, they removed it. So, But I did hear a terrible story about some young teenagers who had terrible mm. pain and suffering the, as 13-year-olds, and it was really cruel mm. to say that just because they weren't 18, they weren't yeah. able to access voluntary assisted dying. But yeah. anyway, in Queensland, we'll be cruel yeah, and we yeah. will just... That's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's mm. not going to be any changes yeah. in that regard. Mm. Um, and... It's just a little bit of a comment about the Netherlands um, mm. um, situation, the Belgian situation, is that those numbers, if you talk about numbers below 18, they're incredibly small in terms mm. of what's going on. And when you actually look at what happened, you go, oh, my goodness, yeah, well, <laughs> I can understand why you know, they allowed this to, to happen. You know, it, yeah. um, just be, if, if you're... 17 years and 11 months, you know, <laughs> is it going to make much difference in terms of your um, decision-making capacity than, than if you're 18? You know, so decision-making capacity is something that's, um, that lawyers and, and, and doctors deal with all the time. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not something magical. And depending on what it is, um, kids can make, some, can make decisions like this, but... This is all speculation because it's not going to happen in Queensland. Yep, no. yep. So the problem with this podcast so far this evening, Craig, is that we're just Talking agreeing. Much. We're just <laughs> we're just agreeing with each other. Oh, okay. And we don't uh, have enough. The twelfth man's been really disappointing. Like, where is he? Where, where's the twelfth man? <laughs> oh, this fits in with a the libertarian theology. Oh, I see. That's why he's been theology. <laughs> if you don't mind. 
Let's let's get some alternative viewpoints in okay. and let's deal with those. And yep. if you're always looking for, you know, alternative viewpoints, the best place to go to is the spectator. But look, isn't it interesting <laughs> that Marshall Perrin was in fact a member of the country Liberal Party? Mm-hmm. We we all assume that, you know, the so called conservatives mm. are always against things like this and clearly they're not. Can can mm. I make just a little bit of a comment um, with in regard to Marshall Perrin, he's actually a member of Dying with Dignity Queensland. Indeed. Um, and because he lives on the Sunshine Coast now. And um, I've spoken to him a couple of times and um, his, and also heard him speak. And his biggest, he said the biggest mistake he made was not making it exclusive to the Northern Territory. So that gave uh-huh. Kevin Andrews a big in to say, no, we can't do this because people are flying, you know, flying in from South Australia or whatever they were going to do. So. Yeah. So he said that was his biggest mistake. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So um, so uh, this article in The Spectator by Tanvir Ahmed. Yes, I know yeah. The Spectator does publish pieces by people who are opposed to it. So let's just make a few statements As from they it. should. And we'll, we'll just see. I'm interested in, um, in your response, Craig. Yep. So he said... <clears throat> The edifice of public support for euthanasia is built on a lie that people know what they might want in the face of dying. The truth is almost all of us don't, especially in a culture where there is a marked taboo around death. Mm. Our inability to consider broader risks in the wake of the pandemic highlights our aversion to even consider facing our mortality. This needs further misconception this feeds further misconceptions about painful death and end-of-life care, corrupting informed debate about assisted dying. So we're kind of not capable of deciding these issues because we don't talk about it enough and people um, don't know what they want in the face of dying. What do you say to that? um, I guess um, I might not have a good perspective on what he's saying. Like, I, I want to be charitable to what he's saying and, and listen to his argument um, for a couple of reasons. I'm a doctor. I've seen a lot of deaths. Okay? It's, mm. uh, I worked in a, I worked in a um, palliative care unit at one stage and, mm. and a, and a, and a um, hospice hospital. So um, I've seen a lot of death. Um, myself, I've been through a life-threatening illness myself, so I've got that perspective as well. Um, so... It, it, I'm trying to step out of myself to think what the average person would be talking about, uh, would be thinking on this regard. I know from our members, and we, we've had numerous um, meetings and you know, information sessions and things like that, and i tell you what, our average age of 74, those, those people, they get up, they tell, tell you all about death and dying and all that sort of thing and what their families have been through and all that sort of thing. So depending on your demographic, if you're in that age group, you've seen people die. You've seen people suffer, you know, in, in their death. You know, so I'm not sure he's right, you know, in, in that sense. When you're young, you're bulletproof. You're not even – you don't even want to think about these things. And even if someone brings it up and you are thinking about it, um, you just don't. Mm. It's just, just the way it is. So, that, so that's, that's my feeling. I'd, I'd be interested in what you guys think about what he said there. Anybody? Is there any merit yeah, that, well, in that? Um, I just keep thinking about my dad because my dad's like, he thinks the voluntary assisted dying is uh, improves his chances of his kids killing him. <laughs> I'm always like, Dad, one good push down the stairs, mate, would be much, much simpler. 
And that's true, mm. really, mm. isn't it? Mm. But um, what, yeah, how do you talk to people that are fearful so, in, in that I, way, even yeah. though it's... Okay, know, so that's like, the sort of the coercion mm. from uh, yeah. this, from other people mm. where people aren't making yeah, a, so a voluntary decision. In that assessment process, just, mm. you know, the, it is important for the doctor to not have relatives there when they're doing that assessment, okay? Mm. So... It's part of that one of the safeguards is to not have someone sitting there looking over and making sure that <laughs> dad does the right thing. You know, I'm thinking about you, Shay. <laughs> so, so there are safeguards built in. But honestly, when it comes to, um, to the actual thing happening, the stories coming out of Victoria, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, mm. Most people don't sort of start from the process where they don't want their you know, mum or dad or anyone to do this. Like at first they're sort of like, what are you talking about sort of thing? So, and then the good part about it is the family starts to talk about it and then they come to, often come to a consensus about, you know, in terms of, well, this is what he really wants and I can see what he's coming from or she's coming from in terms of suffering. Mm. And so it's just not what happens, you know. All these things you hear, these stories you hear, it's just not what ha- what's happened in Victoria. These assessments, I imagine they're, they're questioning these people and they're saying, what is your condition? Why do you want this? Mm. And if people aren't giving what seems to be a logical, coherent reason as to why, mm. then they probably don't pass the assessment? Is exactly, that- exactly. Oh. And, and this is nothing new for doctors, mm. you know. This is something we do all the time, you know. We, we're suspicious people, you know. Mm. Someone's sitting in front of me, you know, you want to really know yep. where they're coming from. So yep. um, for whatever reason, you know, maybe nothing to do with dying, you know. It's it's something that we do in terms of assessment. We say, you know, malingering and things like that, you know, you've got to be on the ball. You don't want to, you know, you don't yep. want someone to pull the wool over your eyes and, um, yep. and also things like someone's doctor shopping for drugs and things like that. You mm. know, we, we've been through all these things. We... we yeah, as soon as someone walks through the door, you virtually know, yeah. but it's part of the process that you have to do it in a professional way and tease things, things out. Mm. Lawyers do it. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's just it's something it, we do. It, it may seem a strange analogy, but I keep thinking of when I had my vasectomy because okay. the doctor said, do well, tell. why are you here? <laughs> why, why do you want the vasectomy? I mm. said, well, I've got four kids already. <laughs> I'm happily married and I don't want any more, and I'm at an age where I, I would not be starting a second family. Yeah. And he said, fair enough, yeah. lie down, and we'll get going on this. Like, yeah. But, you know, he asked the question. Yeah. I gave a damn good reason why somebody would want a vasectomy, and, and he I, said, yep, that makes sense. As yeah. for young people, I, mean, I was talking to my 16-year-old about this, right. um, the fact that legislation has been tabled, and we've had to put two cats down in the last three years. Right. So she has gone through that process of... Yeah, they're terminally ill, they're in pain, um, and it would be cruel to let them suffer anymore. Mm. And so she is very conscientious of that. And and I don't think that's unusual in her age group Mm. to look at having lost a pet to uh, just thinking that thought process and extending it slightly further to humans. Mm. So so I don't think that children are in any way naive about this. Mm. Yeah. And what Joe says kind of like refutes what the article says because actually what's happening is a dialogue's being opened up. Mm. Like mm. if you could go to the doctor and be that frank about a range of things, it would, you know, open the conversation up over and over. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, still from the same article where this yep. guy was against it. 
Many patients are told they only have 6 or 12 months to live, yet survive years or even decades. A sizable minority of patients, as much as between 15 and 20%, I am told, who are under palliative care are discharged home and not to the pearly gates. Given how poor our feelings are in computing probability and mathematics, you can bet a percentage of sufferers who go through with assisted dying would have otherwise survived. This is especially the case in the draft laws drawn up in Queensland um, with the 12-month time limit, blah, blah. So the sort of argument that it's very difficult to judge terminal illness and lots of people live beyond the 12 months, haven't been told they've only got 12 months left. Yeah, this needs to be unpacked a little bit. Okay, so... Maybe it is 15 20%, okay? I think it probably is, but not from what he's coming from. That's a distortion of the facts, okay? I've worked in a hospice. I've worked in a, in, in a hospital that's, um, you know, for palliative care. Palliative care physicians are extremely good. They do get people really, you know, back and feeling pretty good. And you know what? They get discharged to go home. But I tell you what, they're not cured of their incurable disease. Right. <laughs> they're either going to die at home or be back, okay? So, yep. yeah, I'm sure 15 and 20% or whatever um, do get discharged, all right? So I think it's a distortion. I, I just yep. see a distortion of the figures there, okay? Yep. Um, the, the uh, um, what, what was the other thing? Um, um, oh, have only lived for years or even decades. Now... When you're going through the diagnostic process, okay, there are possibilities where a health professional might get it wrong, okay? It's possible. Mm. A lot of, you know, most of the time we don't get it wrong, but mm. it's possible in difficult diagnosis to get it wrong. In cancer, it may be that you don't quite get it right. But that's part of the diagnostic process that may be down the track that you get to the true diagnosis, okay? And you have working diagnosis sometimes, um, as, you, as you're going through it. Now, <laughs> so if he puts it at that very first time, well, they live forever because you got it wrong. It wasn't cancer. It was TB or something like that, okay? Well, yeah, sure, you know, but I hadn't got through the, my whole process, okay? So I think, again, he's cherry-picking there. Yep. Um, and those yep. people are unlikely to choose voluntary-assisted dying if they're going okay, if, if they're not... If if things are improving, they're taking the medication and they start swinging, you know, back upwards and onwards, then they're going to say, "Hang on, I'm not feeling not pretty good." Pa- they yes. will not even pass their consciousness that yes. yeah about voluntary is dying. They're yes. not at that sort of stage. Yeah, yes, that's right. so really, the counter argument is you could only have this system if you could be assured that a hundred percent of people will die within twelve months absolutely guaranteed That's rock right. solid. And, mm. I mean, why do you need that guarantee? It just doesn't mm. make sense, does it? doesn't it? make sense. Yeah. The, the other thing I, uh, you know, because you, you gave me the heads up that the mm. Spectator article was coming. So mm. I, I did I did look at, um, you know, the accuracy of the prognostic process. Yes. Um, and uh, as I've said to, you know, those in doc- it's one of the, the, the heart sink moments when as a doctor you're asked, oh, doc, how long have I got? And you go, oh. Oh, I'd, you know, because you have a bit of an idea, but you you are truly dealing with mathematics in the sense that if for that group of people with, say, pancreatic cancer, right, you know, the percentage, you know, there's, the, the death rate's pretty horrific, you know, but there are 5% of people who don't die. You know, there's always going to be a percentage mm. who survive, you know, okay in terms of um, the prognostic situation. But you know what? When that when that's dealt with right at the beginning, 
you don't know who they're going to be. And they are nowhere near, as Trevor was saying, nowhere near the voluntary assisted dying stage of things. So he's, you know, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not being very honest there. Yep. Yeah. A slippery slope, he says. Um... Well, the slippery slope's been dealt with, and mm. it's been dealt with by Oregon, all right? Mm. We are following the Oregon model, okay? In Oregon, there's been no change. There might have been the, the you know, minor thing like crossing a T or dotting an I or something like that, but there's effectively been no change in since, what is it, 1997. Um, so the slippery slope thing just doesn't occur. It mm-hmm. just hasn't occurred. And, um, and again, we can't say what, going to happen in the future, what our kids are going to do or our grandchildren are going to do, they might come up with some other thing. And all legislation should be open to the change down the track, but it doesn't look voluntary assisted dying is going to be one of them. It's very stable. There's another reason he gave here which might interest you, 12th man. He said, it is generally accepted that people should be allowed to do what they like with their bodies and live their lives as long as they don't harm others. But a key facet of modern conservatism must be placing limits on the corrosive hyper-individualism of progressives, including many on the moderate side of the Liberal Party. This principle of autonomy reaches its zenith for rational suicide. So he thinks that uh, voluntary assisted dying is is hyper-individualism. He's criticising the hyper-individualism of this libertarian sort of philosophy that he sees. I don't think it... Uh, what does that mean? I don't know. These people are just thinking of themselves, <laughs> is what he's saying. <laughs> Strange, that. Yep. Yeah. Um, Look, I don't, yeah. I don't agree with him, mm. but I do think it's good mm. that, you know, publications are willing to publish alternative viewpoints. Yeah. That's mm. purely... To be honest, I couldn't a find the uh, thing mm. in mm. our society. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't find many alternative viewpoints, so that was the one I found, and I didn't really but, think they were great arguments. But they're the only there, ones I find. There's another argument, which is mm. palliative care is great. Yes. We can control pain. Yeah, how about that one? Okay, um, so in the parliamentary inquiry, and um, also in the Western Australia, I don't know about the Victorian one. They were able to demonstrate through studies and that that um, there is a core percentage of people who do not respond to palliative care and who are suffering, whether that's pain or some other symptom. There's no symptom control. So the figure they came up with was 5%. I've seen figures of 4.2%. But we actually have some real numbers, what I think call real numbers, which was um, um, the palliative care outcome collaboration, which is a government, figures from a government organisation, and it's, I think, the, the University of New South Wales is involved in it as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a you know, a, a you know, well-respected sort of um, collaboration. And they come up with figures of, I think it was just under 15% don't get good symptom control in palliative care. And also palliative, palliative, um, palliative care Australia who were, which is a peak body for the um, um, palliative care physicians, and they were very against um, voluntary assisted dying, do acknowledge that palliative care does not control symptoms in all patients. And so we, mm. yeah, they're the figures. We have to accept that that's so, the figures. So I wonder why they'd be so against it if they're 
aware yeah. that it doesn't always work. I think their position has softened, and it's softened in a way in terms of saying, well, this is not something that we should decide. This is something that society should decide. So they've become more neutral. Mm-hmm. And, um, and across the board, most organisations have done that. I think the, um, um, the organisation which hasn't taken that position now is still the AMA. Um, and but I, I get the feeling that maybe so that's softening. the AMA is not in favour of voluntary assisted dying. No. Right. No. But okay. the AMA doesn't represent every doctor in Australia, does it? No, it's something between 27 and 30% of that's doctors. All? Yeah, that's all that are in, in it. Now, they might have different figures for that, but because I could be a bit out of date on that. Because, I mean, if you, if you, you know, see a, a news article on TV and they, you know, invariably interview somebody from mm. some professional body, if it's something like this, they, they may well interview someone from the AMA. So I, mm. I think a lot of, of, of the viewing public, just mm. assume, oh, the AMA represents all doctors. But mm. it, it, Regu- is regular listeners to this podcast who have yeah. been with us for six years yeah. have heard you talk about this before, before. Deep Throat. It's yeah. a skewed representation oh, yeah. of the medical community. That's right. It is. It's the older, yeah, it's uh, the older demographic more, yeah, of and doctors. more specialists than, um, than yep. to GPs who would be, you know, GPs mostly belong to the Royal Australian College of um, General Practitioners. Yep. So, um, mm. yeah. So, but the AMA, that's interesting. You would still think, even with that skewed demographic, mm. that they would be in favour of voluntary assisted dying. I think it's changing. And I've seen some indication in some figures in Queensland that their, that their membership is now doing a bit like the Catholic Church, you know, right. that the members are in favour of it, but the, the hierarchy, hierarchy is not, isn't at is this that stage. Right? Uh-huh. Um, so I think it's changing. I think it's going to change. I think it'll, oh. you know, suddenly it'll be... They'll just fall into the line and say, "Well, that's something for society to decide. We just, we, we just implement whatever society decides." So I think, I think that's going to happen, but I'm not holding my breath. Right. The, the other, I just want to tell a little bit of a story from. You know, I sat in in all the um, parliamentary inquiry public sessions from the um, from the public parliamentary inquiry in Brisbane. I missed one; they put an extra one in, and then I'd made other arrangements so I couldn't couldn't do it. So yep. I don't know how many there were. There was at least ten. Yeah, there was quite a lot, probably more. Now, when the AMA made its representation before the committee, um, they had their ethics guy. It was a doctor who was who had qualifications in ethics. Now he got up there, and he went on and on about the reasons for why the AMA were doing this. It was all about what the AMA's position was, what the AMA's ethics was, and all this. Now the thing that got up my got up my up my nose was <laughs> that when you as a doctor are practicing evidence based medicine and that's very important it's an important pillar to me it's one of my three big pillars is to practice evidence based medicine when I when I before I retired and when you look at what that means is um I can't say the exact words but it's that Doctors should apply the best clinical and scientific evidence with the skills they have learnt and the skills they are to apply with the values of the patient. And the AMA were not looking at the values of the patient. They were looking at the values of the AMA. Mm. So they, by doing that, in my mind, they were not practising evidence-based medicine. Now, I've seen this a lot in organisations where it's about the organisation it's not about the patient, but when you're face on face and you're 
I usually have my patients on the side, not across the table, on the side right. of the table, oh, okay. the table with your yep. patient, then you're looking in the eye. It's not about you. It's not about your values. It's about them. And mm-hmm. very often there will be a clash there that you go, oh, gee, I wouldn't do that if it was my, me. But it's not me. It's mm-hmm. them. And you have to respect their values. Now, there may be times when they cross the line and say, well, I want to kill mum or something like that. I, it's never <laughs> happened. But there's things where you've got to say, draw the line, you know, okay? Yep. But, but, you know, but yep. mostly you can, you've got to say, well, look, that's their decision and that's what they want to do. Mm. And that's not what the AMA has done. It's consistently not followed evidence-based medicine. And that's annoying to me. Okay, so the opponents to the bill at this stage, we could say possibly the AMA hierarchy would be are they against it or are they just not in favour of it? Um, like based on what you saw at that at that meeting, at, they were against it. At okay. at that stage, they were definitely against it. Right, they were solidly against it. They were actively trying to convince the committee that this was a bad idea. Right, but they weren't alone because yep. the the very first group that was called up um, in front of the parliamentary inquiry in the very first public meeting. Um, was a group with a massively great link name, but they were basically palliative care doctors, and they were yeah. palliative care doctors involved with the Catholic, um, you know, the martyr system and all that, because the martyr okay. and St Vincent's and all that, they, they provide 55% of um, palliative care. Yeah. Um, and so they, they were so heavy against this. They, to be fair to them, they were also there to push palliative care. Yeah. And I've got to be clear about this. Dying with Dignity Queensland is not against palliative care. We want better palliative care. 70% of people who want voluntary assisted dying also want palliative mm. care and, and, and mm. follow that pathway before they go on to voluntary assisted dying. And, and perhaps uh, articles like the one we were looking at before, perhaps they project the, the idea that it's either or, do you think? Yes, and it's not. And it's, it's not. not. They're Why both, should it they're, be? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's mm. right. And, given, and if you look at... Um, um, experiences overseas, often the Catholic hospitals come in, you know, come into the fold. You know, when, when it's when it's when it's all over, they go, "Oh, gee, we, you know, we're supposed to be doing this." And and some some jurisdictions, the Catholic Church is letting them in. You know, like right. um, so. I'm not saying it's all of them. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see what happens um, in Australia when, yeah, because already the United Church is saying we're not happy about this, but oh, gee. Push comes to shove. <laughs> well, people will start selecting their hospital based yeah. on whether they're yeah. going to be allowed to have this procedure or not. They'd mm. be wise to, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah, so... I mean, if if, yeah. if this sort of thing has crossed their mind, mm. they'd be very wise to check all that well, out. Cer- mm. Certainly those that support it, I think, will use it as a selection point. Mm. So, so, okay, so the opponents are the AMA, uh, some... Parts of the palliative care community mm. or pr- practitioners, but they are and, backing off. So yeah, okay. Mm. And then, of course, the religious elements. Yeah. Any particular religions? The big ones, the Catholic Church. Right. There's no doubt about it. They're the ones um, mm. who are um, not only against it, but prepared to spend money against mm. it. We saw um, who was the ones that spent. Oh, that was in the abortion debate. No, sorry. A million dollars. Yeah, a million dollars. That was for the anti-same-sex um, marriage thing debate, oh, wasn't it? Yeah. But they're prepared yeah, to spend Sydney, a lot of money. Anglican. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anglicans, maybe not so much? Um, 
Not as hardcore. Well, Probably it's hard. depends on the Anglicans because yeah. the Sydney diocese yep. is yes. known to be much more conservative. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of Queensland, yeah. our, our friend Queensland Wendy? Hospital. Was she there? Where, where, sorry? Wendy Friend. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, in yes. the Australian yes. Christian Lobby, yeah. for example. Uh, at the parliamentary inquiry meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I'm guessing she didn't support it. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any Christian groups, come? any religious groups come out Look, in favour of it? Any? It, well, we, we have to say... F- Straight up, that most Christians want voluntary assisted dying. Yes, most Catholics want voluntary assisted dying. I've seen figures of seventy-four percent. You know, um, in Muslim populations, you know, yeah. I'm not sure if it's that it's over fifty percent, but it's a significant number want this legislation through. So it's only the hierarchy that are mostly against it. Now, we have worked um, not as closely as say with the Clem Jones Group and Doctors for Assisted Dying Choice, but there's also Christians for um, voluntary assisted death, I think they call themselves, and right. they have been very active in terms of um, um, counteracting um, these Catholic groups and Cherish Life and those. Um, so they, 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 they're quite active. So And the other, we have one of our members is uh, a chap called uh, Everett Compton. Now, he's an elder of the Uniting Church, um, and he's also was the head of... Um, um, older Citizens Australia, or uh, I've got the name wrong, but anyway, he's been very active for, I think, for the whole time that Dying with Dignity Queensland has been going. So he's been, he's written a book just recently about it as well, um, which we're, we're starting to try and get a bit of, a bit of funds for Dying with Dignity Queensland. Um, but um, so there are a lot of Christians involved in this space who want this to go through. Now, they had his book launch, which I went to. Um, it was sponsored by a couple of parliamentarians, so it was done in, in Parliament. Um, the, he invited along um, Reverend Peter Catt, who is the... He's the... Um, oh, what's the term for deacon or something? I'm not... I don't think that's it. But anyway, of the St John's Cathedral. So he's a Anglican. Mm-hmm. And he was put on the spot there about, you know, do you support it? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, But he was very supportive of the same-sex marriage debate and that. And um, so you know, some people just haven't thought about it and I think they could be, could be swayed. You know, they're not coming straight out and saying, no, I don't agree with it. So, um, so if that's an indication of the Anglican position, um, then I think in Queensland they might fall into line once it goes through. Any idea, question without notice, what, what the percentage of host, private hospitals that would be Catholic and Anglican at all? Is don't it, know. Yeah. Mm, don't know. But, um, you know, in certainly in the... So there's a fair percentage. So, yeah, don't know for sure. But the Catholics have got a big a big percentage. I'd say they're the, the, the major... Yeah. Uniting Church have quite a few as well. Uniting Church has quite a few, yeah. um, but there are quite a few private ones too around, but they tend to be smaller, yeah, private ones. Yeah. Mm. Dear listener, this is just a crazy situation. We've got religions in charge of our private health system, but that's for another day, like, yeah. for goodness yeah. me. Can, like. can I mention just one more thing? And uh, in reference to this, new, this uh, article from The Spectator where he claims that in the West we don't talk about death, do you think that's really true? Uh, I mean, he, I, I suspect compared to other 
compared cultures, to which culture? Which culture I, do I, I don't know because I'm not in another culture, but it's hard to know. But um, so, certainly, I, I don't think we're good at it. No, I, I've I've had conversations with both my parents about um, what's going to happen in the event of their death, but not long conversations. Mm. I just don't know because compared to what you know, to compared mm. to which in which culture do they talk about it well? I, I really would like to know. The Irish yeah. are quite good. Are they? A lot of my uncles already have their plots, and um, yeah. It's quite, but yeah. lots of people in Australia have already sorted their business when they when they reach their elderly my, years. My I mother's mean, got her plot sorted. <laughs> True. Well, well, a lot do, don't they? And yeah. they 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 may not have a plot, but they've probably organised something. You know, mm. they might. Like I, I remember my, I think my parents had a, or my mother at least had a membership in a funeral fund, and I think my grandmother mm. did as well. Mm. Maybe less around so you that. Don't mean- a more. Um, you know, if if I was to become uh, on life assistance, yo, know, at what point do you pull the plug? Yeah. Those sort of difficult conversations, ones that we're not having, and and a lot of people in uh, aged care facilities, uh, there are some real horror stories about uh, ambulance people going there. And performing CPR on someone that they know that they're not going to bring it back, mm. but no one's had the conversation mm. to say, "Look, if you have a heart attack, are we bringing you back? Yes or no?" Mm. And the assumption is yes, because no one's had that conversation. Yeah, that brings out the um, you know advanced health directives that we that needs to be pushed. I think compared to other states, Queensland has been progressive in that that area in terms of um, trying to. Um, um, improve advanced health directives. They do They do need improving. And, in fact, in the um, Queensland Law Reform Commission document, it mentions about that there was a... Um, uh, they actually did a review on this 10 years ago, and they say there's definitely a lot of work still that needs to be done. So I think that's something that's got for a future sort of um, project, maybe for mm-hmm. Dying with Dignity Queensland. And certainly in the lead-up to um, in the last 10 years or whatever, that... We had meetings in nursing homes and all over the place in terms of, and one of the big things was talking about um, um, advanced health directives and that. So I can see a role for Dying with Dignity going forward after this in terms of. What uh, sort of reception area. did you get with for those conversations? Great, yeah. See, yeah. So, so, so people so people are worried to talk to, to talk to people in um, in nursing homes and that. These, these people have been through a whole lifetime of experiences of that. And sure. And sure, in the 60s they were hippies or whatever too, you know, like in the 50s Surely. or bodgies or whatever. Yeah. They, they've, they've been there, done that. They're not yeah. scared to talk about these things. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just harking back to your uh, thoughts about cultures that might have expertise in dealing with death mm-hmm. and just trying to think about it. And it really, I think, depends on experience and exposure and in our culture, we in recent times have basically shuffled our old people into nursing homes, and and rather than taking care of them. And I think a community, okay. and I, you know, stereotypically might think Italian or Greek or something, where the nonna or whatever is still living at home and still mm. with the family, and and basically passes away in the home, mm. or. To a large extent, the deterioration is obvious to the family and is more in your face, if you like. 
I think those communities that are just confronted with it more would you, you if, if, the if they had that living environment. You don't think the families would have been talking about it? Because I mm. think in my family, mm. sorry, I mean, it wasn't something we talked about every time we spoke, but mm. we certainly, I, I know my sisters who managed uh, my mother's affairs when she was very elderly before mm. she died, I'm sure they had a plan, you know. It, yeah, but it's not so much the person who's about to die, it's it's the other people around them. That's what and, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure they had discussed it because yeah. everybody was, she was very old, everybody mm. was uh, fully expecting she would go at any mm. time, you know. Mm. So it was no big shock to any of us when she finally did pass away. Mm. I, I just from my own personal experience at the moment, I've got two very close friends who have unfortunately terminally ill with cancer. Mm. And I can see from their experience that they've got friends, one in particular I can think of, who's got friends who don't know how to deal with it and don't know how to talk to him and don't feel comfortable about the whole thing. They're not sure what he wants or what they should be offering. And uh, there's a tendency almost to sort of withdraw from people to some extent Mm -hmm. and not engage and because you think you're interfering in these last months Mm -hmm. or... Or you might upset them. Yep. Just people not knowing what to do and therefore withdrawing. And and I might have been the same, but I had unfortunately the experience with losing Leon at 18 years of age and I could relate to grieving and what people needed at that moment was people to come to the house and to talk. It didn't have to be about Leon or whatever, but that contact and engaging. And so I feel I'm probably one of the better qualified and with more expertise than a lot of my mate's friends because I've kind of been through a grieving process. I know what it's like. And and so it's sort of an experience. If you've been in a community where there's been death, yep. you'll be better at dealing with it. And, I of think. course, it's a bit different when the person who dies is a young person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah. yeah. The... Um, I think you've touched on an important point there in terms of people also relate to someone that's been in their shoes. Um, um, so I remember when I was going through my problems with cancer and that, that uh, a, a chap at the same time was going through a prostate cancer problem and um, I saw him in the supermarket and I went up and, oh, g'day, how's it going? What's what's on your plate for tomorrow? And he said, oh, I've got chemo. I got radiotherapy. I said, oh, it's going to be a fun day at the office, isn't that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. And, and I got feedback from a lady. He said, oh, you're the first person that sort of just connected with me about you know, the, the realities of the whole thing. But mm-hmm. the thing was he knew I'd, I'd been through a similar process myself and therefore he relayed. So I think mm-hmm. well, for you, Trevor, with, mm-hmm. with Leon and that, you know, mm-hmm. you've got the same sort of, the same sort of um, empathy from that point of view, but they mm-hmm. also the person also knows that they, they can sort of in a sense, trust you because you've been there sort of thing. Mm. Um, and with Dying with Dignity Queens, we have a 1300 number that's been manned for oh, years and years and years. And, um, and and people ring up from time to time, both those who are thinking about volunteers who are dying and those families as well who, who might be saying, oh, geez, talking about this, what you know, what's what's all this about type of thing. And what, I, what I've gleaned from that, I've not been on the 1300, I don't, I don't answer the phone, but what I've gleaned from that is that um, so people are probably a little bit standoffish with their own GPs and that, that they're thinking, oh, 
do they really support voluntary assisted dying? I'm thinking about this. Can I talk to them? And I have talked to them, but do they really listen to me and stuff like that? But when they ring that 1300 number, they know we are in favour of voluntary assisted dying. We are in that camp. Mm-hmm. And they are a lot more they're a lot more likely to open up and talk about things. So mm-hmm. so I think that's a very powerful thing when you're when you're mm-hmm. being through the same thing as as another person. Mm-hmm. So um yeah. In in the chat room, Bronman says if you want to see how another culture deals with death, watch The Casketeers on Netflix, which is about a Maori funeral director in New Zealand. Very interesting. Yeah. So okay. trust Bronman on that one. Yep. So um mm-hmm. check uh, that one out. Yes. So <laughs> So that's a tip there. Um, right. Anything else you need to get off your chest about voluntary assisted dying? Oh, gee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Have we missed anything in this whole process? I look, look, I, um, I apologise for not having read the 800 pages. Um, yes. it, it, it's been a really hectic um, week and a half or whatever it has been since it's been tabled and I've been just flat out doing all the things just to keep help with the organisation and going forward. So I do apologise that... If I've made some mistake or, you know, I haven't been across something, I do apologise for that. And, and but going the, forward now, mm. what is the organisation doing now? Is it oh, counting right. numbers? Is that what's happening oh, yeah, now? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, so um, I haven't got the latest on who's who's where and what, but, um, we, yeah, we keep, we keep track on politicians that we know are 100% supportive of us. Um, so, um, you know... Unfortunately, they don't get much attention from us because we're we're, we're banking on their vote already going forward. Um, we have, um, we you know, there, there are some concerns. You know, I hate to say it, but if they're a they're, if they're a Catholic Labor person, we have some concerns that they, even though they're on the Labor side of things, they might not vote for voluntary assisted dying. So we have work to do there. So, um, so what does that work involve? Are you approaching them and talking oh yeah, to yeah, them yeah, and the, cajoling it, them? Yeah. That, well, well, we're not cajoling, cajoling them. Okay. Persuading. So, What's wrong with cajole? Isn't it, it, just, it implies um, coercion, doesn't yeah, it? Doesn't, it's yeah, it's not as Yeah. Okay. We, we've taken the stand in, voluntary, in dying, um, dying with Dignity Queensland that we will be just factual, uh, we'll be respectful, we'll be civil, and we'll do it in a, a non-emotive way. Yep. Um, and so we approach well, we approach MPs. Um, some of the committee do that, but we're very reliant on our members and supporters doing that and right. getting out and doing that. It's yeah. very it's very very important that they do that. We also rely on our members and supporters to send letters or emails because some people aren't comfortable seeing their MP. It's a, for some it's a it's a big deal, um, and. Um, but so we, we rely right across the state on people doing those sort of things. When you when you divide the organisation over the state, there's not that many people in each each um, yeah. electorate. And surprisingly enough, we've got more people in each electorate in country areas than we have in Brisbane. Because in Brisbane, everyone goes, "Oh, someone else will do this." Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so we're doing that. But we're but we're also yeah actively lobbying um, MPs. Um, um, I saw, but I was invited actually. I was invited by um, uh, Yvette um, Darth, the health minister, um, Shannon Fenneman, Fenneman the um, attorney general, and Stephen Miles, the deputy um, premier, um, to talk to them, to have a briefing with them. And that was um, uh, whenever it was, I can't remember, a week or so ago. And um, that that was interesting. So we went. We had 
representatives, four of us from Dying with Dignity Queensland Committee, we, there's the Clem Jones group, we're there, and Doctors for Assisted Dying Choice, because you know, we're sort of in coalition. Yeah. Uh, and that was interesting, because you usually have, up to now, you've usually had a bit of problem sort of getting in a little bit, um, and also um, getting them on side. But this, this, the feeling to me was a bit different in, in the sense that they'd taken the stand. These were the these were strong supporters, MP supporters, and they were now sort of looking at us and going, "Now we need your support. You've been trying to get us to support it. Now we've 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 done it. We're, we're doing this. Come on, guys. Now ramp it up. Right. <laughs> we need we need you. So the, the strong message I got was, yeah, look, now we need your help. Get out there and do it. And and so. They, we sort of, we asked them, you know, what do you think is the best way to do this? And they said, well, go and see your MPs, and if you have a good, if you have a story, I shouldn't say a good story. They're usually really sad stories. Um, a story about something that's happened to your family or your loved one on that. That's the thing you lead with when you see your politician. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And so that's something I've learned is to tell my story. When I first started seeing politicians, I was going, oh, I won't say anything about me, you know, but in actual fact. That's what they want to hear. That's that's the thing that they, you know, connects them with their community. Mm. Um, so we need to keep doing that. Um, but in in terms of the, um, you know, lobbying and that sort of thing, that um, you know, we are doing this with um, you know, doctors for assisted dying choice and the Clem Jones group in, in terms of the politicians and that and lobbying in, in yeah. Parliament House. Yeah. For those watching on the um, live stream, it's got some crazy person in the chat room. Did you manage to get that off the screen? Like, just take the chat off the screen, Joe, until that'll be the best way of getting rid of it. Somebody's going crazy in the chat room. Oh, okay. Nonsense yeah. stuff. So mm. that distracted me there. So um, this isn't the case where this got on the agenda through the Labor Party as the last item of the agenda, was that? Oh, that was... Um, that, that was the abortion yeah, law or this yeah, law? Yeah, that was one of our committee members. Was um, it this law that... Yes, this is it. Okay, tell that story. Okay. Yep. Um, so one of our um, members um, is our other vice president. Um, yep. I won't say her name because, yep. you know, you need permission for these things, sort of things. Yep. But she joined the Labor Party specifically because this was something dear to her heart. And she thought, well, got to start somewhere. So she sort of started at a grassroots sort of level um, with her local branch and then um, got the local branch to agree, and then it went to the regional. I, I don't know. Well, you know all about the local. It goes. Yeah, the listen carefully sort of, to all this show. This is a great story. <laughs> the, the regional sort of things, oh, and Ramea. spoke to the spoke to them, and, and then that went through, and then she spoke to the policy committee or, or whoever they are. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll have the story not quite right, but anyway. And and so then, far so good. So far yeah. so good. And so and then um, the next step was to try and get them onto the Labor Party. Um, annual conference type thing. So mm-hmm. they got it on there, but it got put right at the end in terms of that because in previous years apparently they'd never got to the end, so there were things that never got done. So if you didn't <laughs> want it done, you put it at the end of the so, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure sitting members, MPs will disagree with what I'm saying, but this is my story and I'm telling it. <laughs> and so it got in there. And anyway... It all went through really quickly through all the items, and, and, and there they were with voluntary assisted dying up there, and, and it goes to the vote, and all the members go, "Yes, we want that," and and the, and the people at the front, you know, won't mention who they were, go, "Oh well, that's the done deal. It was it's all over." And so, yep. so that was just one person joining mm. just to push this, yep. and here we are. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> it is great a story. Yes, it is a great story. Yeah, so yeah. things can happen. You know, the, you know, There's a lesson for you, yeah. dear listener. Yeah. You can get things done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Really good story. But having said that, it does mean that you need community support because the Labor yes. member, members and uh, are just community people, you know, and, mm. and 80% of them are going to support it. So if it goes to a vote... You're going to get 80% of the people <laughs> putting up their hands. So you still have to have that. You can't go with some crazy idea and expect people to, to run with it. They won't. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> or do they? <laughs> Craig. They might. We've got a bunch of other topics we could go, go on to. Yeah. But you're here, so I'm just gonna, <laughs> and you've totally dominated the conversation. Yes, that's right. So why don't you just put the icing on the cake yeah. with a couple of, other, couple of your other stories. Anything else about voluntary assisted dying you want to get off to your chest? No, that's probably enough. I could speak for – obviously, I didn't know, but I can yeah. speak for a long time about it, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, you did very well. Very well. Yeah. You put the yeah. case forward very well, Craig. Yeah. Well done. Um, just briefly, your experience. I want to come across two of your good stories. Um, the guy with the silver treatment, just tell that one. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, um, um, one of my good experiences as a, as a GP was having a medical student, okay? Uh, when I, before I had my first medical student, I said, oh, God, this is going to take a lot of time and, you know, I'll be losing money on the deal. And it sort of is a bit like that. It takes, takes time away from your consultations and you have to teach them and stuff like that. But having a medical student was one of the highlights of my career. Um, anyway, um, a patient that I hadn't seen for a long time came in and um, walked through the door and immediately I knew what was going on, sits down and I say to the medical student, okay, take a history, do an examination, see what you come up with. And anyway, she goes through all this whole process and, uh, and it's sort of completely baffled about what I'm trying to get at from her. And I say, did you notice anything about the skin colour of this person? Uh, no, so they go like, you know, well, maybe, maybe slightly dusky sort of colour. The guy had blue skin, blue skin, right? <laughs> like, like in that movie, what was it called? Oh, Where they Avatar. Go to... uh, maybe not that blue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, more of a dusky sort of blue. Um, but there's a condition called blue man syndrome and it's when um, people take... Um, too much silver, colloidal silver. And colloidal silver, I don't know how popular it is now because I've mm. been out of medical circles, but it was very popular with people taking it for all sorts of medical conditions. But it builds up in the body and particularly the skin. So people, these people look blue. They really look blue. Mm. And so he had this, but... Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's interesting, medical students say, it's not... His, his it's heart not, rate's fine, his pulse is yeah, good, his right. blood pressure is great, <laughs> he's... Limbs are perfect. What the hell's he here for? Yeah, well, if you look closely at him, he's blue. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, the medical students, you, know, you can understand that they're, they're sort of a bit anxious. They've got their checklist and they're going through their checklist, check, 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 and they're not yeah. seeing what's straight in front of them. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes. And also your Mother Teresa story. Oh, Mother Teresa. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in a small hospital in India for two years back in 83 and 84, um, and uh, it was with Tibetan Tibetans. Anyway, we had um, some really good doctors there. I, for some reason, I ended up as the superintendent of the hospital. It's a bit of a puzzle to me how this sort of happened. But you we look had, wise. <laughs> I, think that, I think that was what it was. I, I don't know. But we had some really, really smart doctors, and one of them was uh, an English doctor who she got the gold medal at university, so she was really, really smart. Anyway, she decided that, um, you know, get more experience in India. And she, 
heard about Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And she said, yep, that's where I was. I'm going to go down and help out there. So she went down to Calcutta and um, it wasn't that – I don't know how long she was there. I can't really remember. It wasn't that long, a month, six weeks, something like that, and she came back and she was totally disgusted with, with Mother Teresa. There were – while I was there, we went through a whole heap of epidemics of um, meningococcus, uh, meningococcal uh, meningitis. Uh, mm. And when she was there, it swept through the orphanages, you know, the orphanage where she was working. And um, Is it highly contagious? It's highly contagious, yeah. From what, air, contact? Uh, both, yeah, both. But um, certainly contact um, in an orphanage, yeah. Mm. And um, she um, said to... You know, Mother Teresa, look, these kids just need penicillin, you know. And pen- you know, India has its own really good pharmaceutical um, industry there and penicillin, was, even for our Indian standards, was really, really cheap. And all these kids needed was penicillin. And her response was, oh, we just give them love, you know, and um, mm-hmm. that's all they need. And these kids were dying. So she came back completely disgusted. By it. And this is this woman that's... Isn't she beautiful, you know, um, sanctified or whatever the word is? And yet mm. her reputation is still pretty intact, isn't it? It's still it? pretty intact. And um, truly, yeah, you wonder, is that murder, you know, when you don't, you fail to provide proper care, you know? Um, Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there might be places in India where you can't um, provide penicillin. But, but as I you don't say, think... penicillin wasn't difficult yeah. to acquire, wasn't particularly expensive. And she had mm. the celebrity that if she went, I want penicillin, she yes. could have had it. That's well, right. they, a lot of celebrities donated money to her. And yeah. what I read, and I don't know if it's true, but I read that she did spend some of the money building more, you know, sort of convents or the, you know, the... The uh, what what are they called? Not sect, but the order that she established. Oh, yeah. But I read that she sent quite a lot of the donated money to the Vatican. Mm. Just mm. gave it. I wouldn't to be the, surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Church, yeah. Rather than expend it on these people who she assumed were going to die anyway. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think some of the Catholic philosophy has um, a lot to be desired, you know, and uh, that sort of. Reminds me at that same those public hearings for the um, parliamentary inquiry, um, there were Christians there um, arguing for suffering that suffering was good, you know, basically good for the soul. You know, and I'm going, yeah, it's all right as long as it's not you. That's suffering. right. Yes, you can choose that if you wish, yeah. but um, don't foist yeah. it on the rest of us. Thanks well, very much. Looking at the um, reaction of the parliamentary committee sitting there, who were very diplomatic about a lot of things, um, um, that didn't go down well. Right, <laughs> that, that didn't go well down down well at all. And, and another, sorry, what didn't go down well? The idea of uh, suffering. The, the idea of suffering. suffering. Yeah, at the end of life, you know, yeah. this is a yeah. good nothing thing wrong with a bit suffer. of suffering. No, nothing yeah. wrong with a bit of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, that was a tough one to. to Some stomach. people say Mother Teresa fetish, fetishized, fetishized. Is that yes. the word? Yeah. Suffering. Okay. Yeah. And I read one account of her visiting. She, she said, "Suffering gets you closer to Jesus." Yes, I read mm. one account of her visiting a facility in America where mm. people were dying with AIDS, oh, right. and uh, apparently she was, you know, oh, yeah. asked yeah. by some someone who was dying, you know. Please, you know, help me, you know, mm. with this suffering. And she said something along the lines of, "Well, Jesus is 
you know, embracing you or, or touching you or something. And he said, well, tell Jesus to leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I make a statement about voluntary assisted dying? Yes. It, it's, it's all in the word, the first word, voluntary. Yes. This, this legislation, no one's going to be forced to, to go through this process. Okay? Yes. But the moment we're all forced not to be, have the option of going through it, it's, it's like... Mm. Lots, lots of other legislation. Mm. It's compulsory. You, know? mm. you can't break the law and kill people. You know, all these things you're not allowed yeah. to do. With this one, the options there. You know, we just need the option yeah. that you know, uh, if if, it, if someone wants to suffer, fine, that's their business. Are there horror stories of people attempting at the moment to do a homemade, you know, uh, voluntary assisted dying, like with. I don't know, shooting themselves or yeah. other things? There, what's, are, what's, there what's... are other ways to do it, which yeah. a, an old friend of mine told me about years ago, and he, mm. he prepared oh, many years ago to end his own life. Yep. Um, yep. I, I perhaps shouldn't mention it on mm. the podcast, oh, but yeah. there are ways, and they're quite mm. simple and quite accessible and quite painless. I um, worked with someone who said um, his mother was dying of terminal cancer, uh, and he and she had had a discussion and he had gone out and uh, got what was necessary to help her when the time came. Mm. And his sister found out and said, if you do that, I'll report you to the police. Mm. And, mm. and it was an incredibly selfish act on his sister's part mm. um, because his mother had asked him to help mm. and he was willing to take the risk of uh, prosecution, prosecution mm. to do this. Uh, and, and his sister was... No, you can't take my mother away from me. It's it's an incredibly selfish act. Yeah, we have figures on this from the coroner, mm-hmm. um, and there's in in the terminally ill who at the end of their life, the suicide rate is seven per month um, in that in that population for Queensland for Queensland, yeah. right? And so yeah, eighty four in a year. So and can you say typically how this is done in men? It mm-hmm. tends to be often very violent, you know, with, with mm-hmm. a gun. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, in in some, it's you know taking medication, you know, stockpiling medication and doing mm-hmm. that, uh, hanging. Um, I have one of my patients hanged himself, um, and um, there are various ways that people do it. So I don't want to go into mm-hmm. too much detail, but mm-hmm. they are often violent. And so, one of the things that the opposition opposing voluntary dying will come up with is that that this is just suicide, this is just another form of suicide. The voluntary assisted dying isn't suicide, okay? The the options, the two options between, you know, for people who are at the end of their life and dying and suffering is dying and dying. But one of them is dying at in their own at their own time and their own circumstances to to to, to it, it gives them the option of reducing suffering. But there are no extra deaths with voluntary assisted dying. Mm-hmm. Well with suicide, there is the option. Of, of living or dying, okay? It's not, you know, they, they, it, it's a very dis, distinct difference. And often for suicide, it happens in, a, in a, a dark, desperate sort of way and, in, and alone. You know, with, mm. the, the That's the come, sad part. Dying it's the sad alone. part, they're yeah. alone and, mm. um, and it comes from a deep and dark place inside them. And, and earlier because uh, they're, they're fearful that they won't be able to have the strength yeah, that's right. That's exactly the reason. That's the reason. Mm-hmm. So the hope is, and, and I think there's some evidence for this, that you know, by allowing people this option, 
who and they may not take up the you know it's just having it there is a comfort and and that they will go through dying without having to resort to these sort of measures. So, in fact, it may prolong life rather than... Exactly, and prevent suicide. Exactly. And prevent suicide. As you said, sometimes people will uh, commit suicide rather than wait longer Mm. uh, with the fear, as Joe mentioned, that they might not be able to self-administer a drug or whatever. Mm. It's the same with abortion. Outlawing abortion doesn't stop abortion. Mm. All All it means is it happens in... Uh, dodgy abortion clinics that have no regulation. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the same here. People people put in a desperate situation will find a way out, and if you don't give them legal options, they'll take illegal options. Mm. Mm. Well, Craig, you're a man of many talents. Next time <laughs> you come on, you can talk to, about, talk to us about ye old English. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yep. Shoemaking from the yep. Middle Ages. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, archery, both able-bodied and disabled-bodied archery. Yeah, you're summing up my life here. And <laughs> <laughs> any other? Uh, oh, I think that's any, enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a delight to yeah. have you on, Craig. Yeah. Mm. Can I just yeah. make one comment? Okay, yeah. that um, um, the twelfth man's signing off or signing on when he's saying um, greetings, Earthlings, right? Um, which is Erdlingus. And Erdlingus means farmers. <laughs> so, right. Earthlings, yeah. Erdling, farmers. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, Erdling. Earth, so the word earthling. Yeah. Oh, well, somebody who's dealing with the earth is a mm. farmer. Oh, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and you think when, of that every time. Yeah, when Paul says, so, so all I can think about is farmers. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you're the only person who thinks that way. That's it. It's, it's funny how those words crop into my head just because of my knowledge of um, yes. 12th century English. Yeah. yeah, well, there you go. Well, I think it was about, uh, it must have been about eight years ago, I wandered into a secular party meeting in the library at the City Hall and Joe was there and you were there, Craig, and yeah. you were there, Paul, and it was an interesting group of people. It was a very know, interesting group. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was fact, very we, diverse. And, yes. we, and we've maintained friendship yes. with quite a few of them, haven't we? Yes. Mm. And who would have thought all those years later we would be mm. here now in this mm. doing this? Yeah, interesting. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. So good on you, Craig. Yeah. Um, we will not, bro- uh, you know, attack, attack any of the topics we had on the list. Yeah. <laughs> next week we'll do that. Um, I, so next week I think I'm going to do a little bit of a book review type thing. I'm really keen on this book that I've been reading and I might just do some sort of solo type thing and then we'll have the panel back in two weeks. And so, um, so anyway... Uh, I'll say goodnight, talk to you either next week or the week beyond, I'm not sure, but tune in and listen when we can. Off to you, Craig. Say goodbye. We're still hard, Erlingus. (laughs) (laughs) We're still hard, Erlingus. Oh, very good. Goodnight, everybody. And it's a good night from him. Do I hear $1 million, $1 million for this hovel from the hopeful first home buyer? Is there a property investor who wants to rip their heart out today? Of course there is. $1.1 million from the property investor there that already owns three apartments. Does the first home buyer want to use their first homeowner grant? Yes, they do. $1.2 million now. And the property investor immediately takes us to $1.3. Does the first home buyer want to dip into their super and f*** themselves in the long run? Yes, they do. Up to $1.4 million now. And yes, the property investor takes us to $1.5. It's almost like these government incentives only serve to drive up house prices. $1.5 million, ladies and gentlemen, for the perfect... Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. 
you'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.